What if you were to wake up one morning and say, I think this morning I'll drop in on President Trump and uh, go have breakfast with him. Do you think it would be that easy? You're going to have to go through lots of channels. You're going to have to get through lots of people. You're going to have to have background checks. Everything before you can just walk in. Revelation chapter 4. Beginning with verse 1. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying. Come up here. And I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature like the face of a man, the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle." The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And here we have a vision of the transcendent God. The God of the universe. The eternal, transcendent, sovereign ruler of the universe who rules from the throne and accomplishes all of his sovereign will. And as you see all of these details, these fearsome creatures, you think about this, John intends for us, the Holy Spirit intends for us to visualize these. It was given in a vision. These fearsome creatures surrounding the throne with these various faces and six wings and they have eyeballs all over their bodies and you have these 24 elders and you see these layers around the throne so there in the throne is the one and he is so radiant, so beautiful he cannot be seen by human eyes lest the human being be consumed. He is so beautiful and so radiant. When you see the the vision of this in Isaiah and Ezekiel and you see these six winged creatures with two of their wings they cover their faces they dare not look at God fully in the face from that throne even in their moral perfection they dare not gaze upon God lest they be consumed you see all of these layers layering outward so envision with me for a moment what we see here is if you will a raised dais and there is a throne And the glory of God emanating from that throne in beautiful colors. And then, 
we see before that throne a, a candlestick, if you will, with these seven lamps burning that represent the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, I believe. We looked at that last week. And then you see this sea of glass and you hear these thunders and these lightnings and it's refracting off of this sea of glass and these colors are radiantly streaming outward and it says they're thunders and voices. And remember, at the time this was written, the greatest display of raw power was seen in nature unleashed. So they're describing here, God is describing raw power unleashed from that throne. And then you have these four creatures surrounding the throne. And then you have 24 elders who are crowned that surround the throne. And then you have a host of angels, it tells us later in Revelation, that surround that throne. And then you have all of creation, all of the creatures. And all of this in Revelation chapter 4 is the setting to the drama that is about to unfold. When we see this, it is setting up what is to come. The vision of the transcendent God. You don't just walk up to the one on this throne and say, Hi, buddy. You get the picture? These creatures in their moral perfection, falling down before the Lord, not resting day or night, and they're crying out to God, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. These 24 elders with crowns upon their head, casting their crowns before the throne and saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. He is the creator. All others are creatures. He not only created, but he sustains. Everything in the universe is held together by him. Why is it that the universe does not crumble into dust and just go? It's because God is actively sustaining the universe every second of every day. He is absolutely sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And the picture here is that He rules the entire universe from the throne. His administration sees all and governs all. And then we move to chapter 5. And I saw on the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much. Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. You see, here is this scroll in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. The scroll is described as 
covered with writing on the inside and on the out, but it's sealed, and it's sealed with seven seals. The scroll, I believe, represents the sovereign purposes of God that are to be carried out in the universe, in all of creation. The sovereign purposes of God. And there is no one worthy in all of the creation amongst all the created beings. There is no angel worthy. There is no creature that never sinned against God. You realize that the elect angels have never sinned against God. Not a single impure thought. Not a single rebellious action. But yet not one of them worthy to approach that throne and to take that scroll and to execute the sovereign purposes of God. No man in all of creation worthy to do this. It says, no one under the earth, there is no one who has died that is worthy. No one worthy. And so John, he weeps and he weeps bitterly. Now, why, why is he weeping here? He's not, he's not weeping because he's just so curious that he just can't stand it and it's making him sad because he's so curious to see what's inside the scroll. It's not that. It's deeper than that. He is weeping bitter tears because he knows that if this scroll is not open, God's purposes are not carried out. And he is weeping because at first there is no one found worthy to be God's executor of his sovereign will in the universe. So I wept much, he says, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. We talked about this last week and we, we need to realize this. We must realize this. One of the biggest problems that we have in our culture here in the United States of America in cultural Christianity, one of the biggest problems that that exists in people and how they think about God is that they do not truly believe that God is holy, holy, holy. They look at God like he's just the big guy upstairs, you know, it's me, me and Jesus hanging out. Just the big guy upstairs and he, he just... He just unconditionally loves everybody. Everybody's going to heaven, you know. Have you ever been to a funeral where the pastor stood up and said, the spirit of the body of that man is burning in hell right now? You go to a funeral and everybody was good. Everybody's a good old boy. It doesn't matter how he lived his life. If he could live his life... Cursing Jesus Christ with every other breath. He could live his life 
beating his wife and drinking himself into oblivion, whatever it is, but people will find good things to say about him. And oh, yeah, he's going to be in heaven. Why? Because God's just so unconditionally loving. He lets everybody in. I do not see that God in the Bible. God is holy. He is holy. Why is John weeping? Because God is so holy, so unapproachable, and no one is found worthy. And he is broken because no one is found worthy. But this is all leading up to. It's all leading up to the one who is worthy. But as I, as I finish this application, one of, one of the things for, for ourselves that we have to realize, and we, if you read ahead, you know the rest of the message, okay? <laughs> and you know where I'm going with this. You know where God's going with this. But if we do not grasp the problem, we will not appreciate the solution. People must bow before a thrice holy God. They must come to a place of brokenness over their own sin. And they must realize that God is so pure, the scriptures say, that he cannot look upon sin. He is so righteous that he is a consuming fire. He is so perfect in his perfections, as it says in the Psalms, that he is angry with the wicked every day. And if someone does not come to a place of recognizing the vast distance and difference between them and God, they will never appreciate the solution of the Savior. If they persist in blame shifting and making excuses for their sin and pointing out why they think that they're going to be okay and that there's always somebody out there more evil than them, as long as they persist in that, they will never Rejoice in the Savior fully or truly. I've used the, I've stolen one of Ray Comfort's illustrations and used it at the jail. And that is the illustration he uses about the parachute. If any of you heard the illustration he uses about parachutes, you know, uh, it's basically if you're getting on a flight, you get on and they hand you a parachute and say, hey, go ahead and take this, it'll, it'll uh, make your flight better. But you get on there and you put it on and it's uncomfortable. You know, if you've, if you've flown commercial flights, you know, you get, you know, you, unless you're first class, even then, you've got these seats and you're crammed into these seats. And if you've got this parachute on, you know, it, it's going to be uncomfortable. And if you're thinking, well, this is just supposed to make my flight a little bit more comfortable, a little better, then, you know, that's, you're like, I don't like this thing. Take it off, put it under the seat, whatever. A lot of people are told, just, just accept Jesus. Just take Jesus on and he's going to make your life a little bit better, right? He's going to make your flight a little more comfortable. And then people try on Jesus and their life doesn't just instantly transform and everything go perfectly. They have a little hardship or whatever else. And so they take him off and say, well, that's not, that just didn't work. I, I tried this Jesus thing. It didn't work. But what if you're on that plane and they hand you the parachute and say, this plane is going down? Then you're going to be like, I'm hanging on to this parachute no matter how uncomfortable it is, right? If you don't understand the problem, you won't appreciate the solution. 
God is holy. He is pure. He is righteous. Look at Isaiah chapter 40. And begin with verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales, United States of America. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor is beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, United States of America. And they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot, seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Oh, such craftsmanship. (laughs) Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, every one of us. We're like grasshoppers. He stretches out the the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts by number. He calls him all by name by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. This is our God. This is the God who is upon the throne. This is the God with whom we have to do. Now, that whole passage that I just read is in a chapter of comfort to God's people. And now we consider the solution. In Revelation 5, John, weeping much, Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Notice that again. It's not only that no one could open it, but they couldn't even look at it. (laughs) These perfect angels could not even look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand, hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, notice here. One of these elders, he says, do not weep. There is someone who is worthy. He's proclaiming. And notice the description of this one. The lion of the tribe of Judah. First of all, notice that the lion of the tribe of Judah. We know, of course, this is speaking about Jesus. What what does it mean that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Of Judah. The lion then, as now, represents kingship. The lion is the king of the beasts. So, lion symbolizes kingship, it symbolizes authority. And the lion of the tribe of Judah, if you turn back to Genesis in chapter 49. We see Jacob's last words to his sons. And begin with verse 8. Isaiah, or excuse me, Genesis 49 and verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. This is a prophecy of Christ who is to come. Until Shiloh comes, Shiloh meaning peace. Jesus is the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He sprang forth from that tribe. He is the one who is to rule and to reign. He is the one who is worthy to take the scroll and to loose its seals. Jesus is the one. Brent read for us from Philippians chapter 2. And it speaks of Christ's exaltation. It says, He has been given the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision and he says, I saw one like the Son of Man, Come before the Ancient of Days, and to Him was given an everlasting kingdom and dominion. And then Jesus, in Matthew chapter 28, proclaims to His disciples, this is after His resurrection, He says, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. 
Go. Make disciples. Baptize. Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded. Jesus is king. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has prevailed to open the scroll. That word prevailed means that he was engaged in a fearsome battle and he triumphed. Jesus battled the forces of darkness. Jesus stood one-on-one against his archenemy, Satan, and thrashed him in the wilderness. Jesus went to that cross, and there it says in Colossians that he spoiled the principalities and powers and made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Jesus is the king. Jesus is worthy because he has prevailed It says also that he's the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the root of David. This harkens back to Isaiah and chapter 11, and it speaks about a root, a shoot that would spring up, and it would spring up from the root. So it's interesting, Jesus is both the shoot, the offspring of David, but he's also the root, the source of David. And do you remember what he said there in the latter days of his ministry as he's challenging the scribes and the Pharisees? He says, why does David call the Messiah Lord? If the Messiah is his son, why does he call him Lord? It's because Jesus is both the shoot and the root. We sing that great song and it says, David's son, yet David's Lord. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And and what does this mean? You see, the Jews and those who, who know the Old Testament, they were looking for the Messiah to come. God had made a covenant with David and said that there would be someone to reign upon his throne forever and ever. Multiple prophecies that in the lineage of David, the Messiah would come and he would reign and rule forever. And here we see him. the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. He is the one who has prevailed and the one who can execute the sovereign purposes of God in all of the universe. And the loosing of these seals, what takes place in chapter 6 and 7, and as all of this unfolds, it is the sovereign Control and purposes of God in human history being unleashed, unloosed. And remember, as we introduced this book of Revelation, we noted that a main theme here, since this was written to people who were persecuted, believers who were being persecuted or who would be persecuted for the faith, it's being written to give them comfort, to give them assurance 
that things are not as they seem. Although you look around you in the world and you see evil people and it appears that they are triumphing, you see wars, you see famines, you see pestilences and plagues, yet in it all God is in control. Why? Because what is taking place as these seals are unloosed, they're being unloosed from the throne. Everything that follows in the book of Revelation is from the perspective of the sovereignty of God and all of these things coming from the throne. And that gives encouragement to God's people. We look around and we're like, where is God now? Is God possibly in control? As we look around and our hearts become burdened because of people abandoning common sense and basic morality and the fundamentals of God's word, we can begin to lose heart and say, where is God now? The answer is God is on the throne. He is ruling and reigning. He is accomplishing his sovereign purposes. And he's writing the book of Revelation so that God's people throughout the ages will trust that the victory has been secured in the God and the Lamb rule and reign. Now, think about this for a moment. This elder, as John is weeping, says, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures. And what would you expect him to see? Not a lamb, if you hadn't read this before. <laughs> a lion. But what does he see? In the midst of the elders stood a lamb. And as a, a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which of the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. You see here? One thing that uh, D.A. Carson has pointed out about Revelation, remember, Revelation is highly symbolic. We're dealing in symbols and, and figures here. Is, is Jesus in his present bodily form a bloody little sheep with multiple eyes and horns? No, not literally. <laughs> This is symbolism. It's symbolism. And one thing that D.A. Carson points out is that apocalyptic literature, which is filled with symbolism, can very well and appropriately mix its metaphors. Which is it? Is Jesus a lion or is he a lamb? Both. You see, these are metaphors, they're symbols to describe to us the qualities and character of Christ. To describe to us those actions which he has accomplished in the sense of him being a lamb slain, you see. And so, 
John looks and he was probably expecting to see a lion there. But what does he see? He sees a lamb. And a lamb as though it had been slain. As though it had been slain. Now, where is, the, where is this lamb? Did you notice in verse 6? This lamb is in the midst of the throne. Does this lamb come from the far reaches of the universe and come up to the throne? No, the lamb is in the midst of the throne. What is being pointed to there? Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, John chapter 17, hearkening back to Brother Rick's message this morning, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer talks about proceeding, coming from the Father, and he says, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world was even created. The Lamb proceeds from the throne. When he, Christ, came down to earth, he came from heaven, and he is in the midst of the throne. We're going to see as we go through this passage, the deity of Christ is echoing throughout this passage. You know, there are those who say, maybe you've, maybe you've encountered them as you've ministered to the lost. Especially like the Muslims will say, show me one verse in the Bible where Jesus says that he is God. Or you'll talk to people and they don't believe in the Trinity and they'll say, well, just show me, just show me a verse in the Bible where it clearly says that there is Trinity. The reality is, when we consider the deity of Christ, we have direct statements to that in the Bible. And we're not going to take time just to run all the way through those. But here's another reality. As we see Jesus described in the scriptures and we see how people respond to Jesus in the scriptures and we see the prerogatives that Jesus has, all of these things are resoundingly saying he is God. He is God. The fact there is that he is in the midst of the throne and that he can approach and take the scroll and affect the sovereign purposes of the one on the throne. And then, in response to that, when heaven is resounding and proclaiming that he is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, and that blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb... That would be blasphemous if the Lamb is not divine. You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only you shall serve. Jesus is divine. He is the second person of the Godhead. He is worthy of all worship. In the midst of the throne, 
And of the four living creatures in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Seven, seven horns. Seven is the number of perfection or completion. That's what it represents. The numbers in Revelation are highly symbolic. Highly symbolic. Number seven, perfection, completion. Number ten also represents perfection, completion. The number four is used several times to refer to the four points of the compass. And it's referring to the entire earth. Therefore, a broad expanse. The number 12 is used very frequently, and it refers to, oftentimes, the peoples of God. You have the 12 patriarchs, and you have the 12 apostles. These numbers are highly symbolic. When we read the book of Revelation, we shouldn't approach it from the perspective of, we have to take everything literally unless it couldn't possibly be literal. We need to recognize that it's a book filled with imagery and symbolism, And that more than likely, in our interpretation, these things ought to be seen as symbolic. It's a form of literature which uh, we have extant Jewish writings in this genre that we call today apocalyptic. Now, there's no one out there writing today in this particular genre, but... We know as we approach the Bible, right, that in this by way of uh, helping us understand how to interpret it properly, that there are different genres, different forms of literature within the Bible. The Bible contains historical narrative, but the Bible also contains proverbs. The Bible contains poetic statements. The Bible contains epistles. The Bible contains apocalyptic literature. And if we're going to read the Bible appropriately, we need to use the proper principles of interpretation for each form of literature. Now, we recognize that as common sense in, in our life. We don't, we don't read the uh, manual for how to operate our toaster. Some of us need manuals to know how to operate our toasters. But we don't, we don't read that manual the, the same way that we would uh, read Percy Bysshe Shelley and his poem Ozymandias, Right? We, we recognize that there's a difference between poetry and instructions on how to operate a toaster or to drive a car. We recognize that there's a difference between historical works and poetical works or works which are filled with figures of speech and imagery in order to make a point. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic. It's filled with imagery. Jesus ascended into heaven in what form? In his resurrected body. And we have description of his resurrected body in the Gospels. So we don't look at this and say, oh, well, Jesus is pictured here as a lamb with blood all over it because it's been slain in seven horns and seven eyeballs, and that's what Jesus looks like now. No, figurative again, right? Figurative. Seven, the, the horn, horns represented kingly authority, rule, and power. Rule, power, dominion. 
And the number seven means what? Complete. Complete. So here's a lamb who's being described as having complete authority or dominion. These seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, we've seen these several times already. Now, I'm not preaching all the way through Revelation. We've just focused on this for a couple of weeks. But we saw it in chapter 4 when it said that the seven lamps of fire in verse 5 were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And then the seven spirits of God are also mentioned in chapter 1. Now, again, as we approach the book of Revelation, we've been looking at the fact that if we step back and see the big picture, then we can understand more clearly what is taking place in each of these visions. As we work our way down and we start to interpret each and every figure and symbol, we need to become more and more humble as we go. Because if you examine the commentaries of the greatest theological minds that the Lord has given us over the millennia, you look at 50 commentaries and you'll get 50 different opinions sometimes about what the specific symbols mean. And so a lot of people are afraid of the book because they're saying there's so much diversity, so different a range of views about this book. How can I possibly understand it? I, I don't think I'll even read it. But the rea- reality is, and I become more and more convinced as I study the book, that God wants us, first of all, he wants us to step back and see the big picture. And I've quoted Vern Poitras who says, Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Revelation's a picture book, not a puzzle book. These are a series of visions given to the Apostle John. If we approach each one of these from the perspective of, well, the first thing I'm going to do is try and figure out what the horns are here, the eyeballs are here, you know, instead of stepping back and seeing the big picture, we're going to be very prone to miss the big picture, miss the forest for the trees, as the saying goes. What ultimately do we see here? We see in chapter 4, the transcendent, eternal, sovereign, creator of heaven and earth, ruling from the throne in unapproachable glory. And then in chapter 5, we see the Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, is the only being in the entire universe who is worthy to approach the throne and to affect the purposes of God. That's the big picture. And what is our response to be? It's worship. It's worship here, isn't it? Now, as we look at this, it's not wrong for us to seek to understand these symbols like I've been trying to explain them. Just so you know that there are Differences of opinion, even amongst very godly men, very godly men in the same camp. You know, I would find myself uh, predominantly in the Reformed camp of interpretation. There are very godly men in the same camp who will have varying degrees of difference when it comes down to the the minutia. That's okay. If they just listen to me, they'll get it all right. <laughs> no. 
Absolutely not. I rely much on them. But the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven is the number of what again? Completion or perfection. Sent out into all the earth implies seeing all, being everywhere, all at once. I believe that this is speaking about the fact that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is being represented. And we know that Jesus, in his ministry, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Isaiah It speaks about the Spirit upon the Messiah, and it lists seven characteristics of the Spirit. Spirit of the Lord, and Spirit of wisdom, and the Spirit of might, and the Spirit. You see, it lists seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit that would be upon Christ. So, I think that this is referring to the Holy Spirit. Again, there are godly people who disagree on this. But in all of it, you see Christ in his perfection. You see his glory. You see his worthiness. You see his beauty. So you see, we can get the big picture, right? And we can worship Jesus. Now, it says that he's pictured here as a lamb. What does that remind us of? The Passover. If we look back to Exodus, Exodus and chapter 12. So remember, the people of God were in captivity in Egypt, children. You remember this account? The people of God are in captivity in Egypt, and then. God raises up Moses to go before Pharaoh. Pharaoh does not want to let the people of Israel go. He's got uh, free labor there. He doesn't want to let it go. And God brings plague upon plague upon plague on the people of Israel. The scriptures say that Pharaoh hardened his heart and We read also in the scriptures that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So it was God's sovereign purpose that these plagues would come upon the Egyptians. And then the final plague is instituted and the angel of death is to pass over. And all of the firstborn in the land are going to be slain by the angel of death. But God provides a sacrifice for the children of Israel so that they will not lose their firstborn. And so, in verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Now notice this. And as you think about the descriptions here of what's to take place in this Passover, think about Christ and his perfections and how this pointed to Christ. 
Your lamb shall be without blemish. Okay, they weren't to give the runt of the litter. They weren't to give the three-legged one to God. It was to be the choicest. Does this not point to the moral perfection and purity of Jesus? That it was he who knew no sin, who became sin for us and became the Lamb of God for us so that we could approach God. The Lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You know what? We've, we've had a lot of issue and discussion and debate and controversy about men and women in leadership over the past several months. The fact of the matter is Jesus came as a man. Amen. He was a male. God chose it that way. And there's a lot to that. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. There was a period of observation and scrutiny. So they were to to take it and they were to keep it for several days and they were to observe it. Jesus Christ was under observation. He was under scrutiny. Especially toward the end of his ministry, he was constantly under scrutiny, even by his enemies. And yet he proved to be blameless in everything. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. There was Jesus crucified by the Jews. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the household where they eat. And so you see the picture here. They were to slay this lamb And then the blood was to be put over the doorpost. And when the angel of death looked upon the blood, he would pass over the house. Jesus Christ was slain for us, was he not? The lamb slain. This was decreed by God before the foundation of the world. It's not that Adam and Eve sinned and God said, whoops, now I got to come up with plan B, right? This was the glorious plan of redemption. Decreed by God the Father in eternity that Jesus Christ would come. And this Passover feast pointed to Christ. Just like the the bloody sacrifices in the Levitical system pointed to Jesus who was to come. Even things like you look in Leviticus and it says there that the, the priests who were chosen were not to have physical deformities. And you're like, well, what's up with that? But was God against, uh, was he against people who had physical challenges or were disabled? What's up with that? No, it's a picture. A picture to point to Christ would come and he would come in spiritual perfection. This was all crafted by God to point to the coming of Christ and what Christ would accomplish. And so Jesus is the Lamb slain. And John the Baptist sees him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Who has come to take away the sins of the world. Back in Revelation, he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat... On the throne. He walks right up to God the Father and takes the scroll. 
out of the hand. And when he does that, all of heaven breaks forth into praise. All of heaven resounds with praise for the Lamb. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They fall down before the Lamb. And they fall down with each of them having a a harp. I'm going to reference D.A. Carson again in a sermon I heard of his. He, He says, well... Why a harp? You know, what's, the, what's going on here with a harp? He says, you know, we think of harps, right? We think of a big instrument, you know, shaped like an S, and, you know, and you sit there in a chair and it's got little pedals on it or whatever, and you pluck the strings. And, you know, most people aren't really into harp music, you know. Some people are, some people aren't. But, and oftentimes people end up with this impression of heaven, right, where you're basically sitting around on clouds in fluffy white bathrobes playing harps, and that's what heaven is all about. He says, what's the significance here of the harp? He says, the harp for the Jewish people was the happy instrument. It was the instrument of joy. In the scriptures, the people of God, when they went into captivity, it says that they hung up their harps. The joyful sounds of the music of the harp did not resound when they were in captivity. (laughs) Carson went on to point out, he said, you know, so what's a a joyful instrument in our culture? He said, well, what about the banjo? (laughs) What about the banjo? He said, I don't think I've ever heard a dirge played on the banjo. (laughs) He says, even if, you're not, even if you're not into music, you know, like bluegrass or whatever, you, you hear a banjo playing and your foot starts tapping. You can't help it, right? It's kind of this joyful instrument for us. And that's what's going on. They have these harps, these instruments of joy. And there the lamb is worthy. And he ascends to the throne. And it means that the sovereign purposes of God will be carried out. And so there's rejoicing in heaven. D.A. Carson put it this way, heaven is a foot-stomping happy place (laughs) in this vision. And notice it, it says, with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints are pictured in Revelation and in places like uh, Psalm 141 as incense. You know, the burning of incense, it produces a, a, a sweet smell, a good smell. And our prayers are pictured as going up before God and a sweet smell unto Him. Something that's beautiful to Him. Is that not encouraging for us that our prayers are brought before the Lord? And they sang a new song. A new song. Saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Now, why is this, why is this a new song? If we compare it to the song that was sung 
to the one who sat on the throne in verse 11 of chapter 4, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. This is a new song because it directly references and says that Christ is worthy to do this and receive this glory because he was slain. Because he was slain. And have redeemed us to God by your blood. Now, when you think about blood and the blood of Christ, the Bible doesn't portray the blood of Christ as some mystical substance that has some type of intrinsic properties. Oh, if only I had a drop of the blood of Christ, I could cure cancer. If only I had a drop of the blood of Christ, you know, uh, I'd be free from sin for as long as it remained on me. The Bible doesn't present it that way at all. The Bible speaks about the blood of Christ to speak about his death. His death. When the animals were slain in the sacrificial system, their throats were cut and their blood was poured out. In other words, what? Their life was poured out. So blood serves as a figure of speech, a metonymy for Christ and his death. And when you look at the scriptures, you will see when it mentions the blood, that the blood accomplishes, and you can find in scripture, whenever it speaks about something the blood of Christ accomplishing, you will also see that it says the death of Christ or the cross of Christ accomplished that. So it's speaking about the great... Redemptive work which Jesus Christ did when he gave his life upon that cross as the substitute for all of God's elect and redeeming us to God by his blood. That picture of redemption, think about a slave market. The Bible pictures us as slaves to sin before we're redeemed by God. The picture of redemption is the picture of purchase. We were slaves to sin. Jesus, by his blood, by laying down his life, has bought us. And now the Bible says we're slaves. But we're slaves to Jesus. We're slaves to Jesus. Now what... What would you rather be a slave to, your sin or to Jesus? Who would you rather have as your master, Satan or Jesus? We may not like the the picture of slavery, but it's a biblical picture that we are slaves of Christ. But Christ is the one who is in the midst of the throne. Christ is the one who ascends and carries out the sovereign purposes of God. Christ is the one who has redeemed us and notice this, has made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. So we're slaves to Christ, but in our union with Christ, We have a priesthood, so we do not have to go through a human intermediary 
in order to approach unto God, we can go into the presence of God through the work of Jesus, right? And in the book of Hebrews, it says we enter in through the veil that is the flesh of Christ. We get to go into the holiest of holies. We get to enter into the presence of God because Christ entered in. We don't have to go to a priest to be forgiven of our sins. As a matter of fact, we shouldn't go to a priest or to any person in order to be forgiven of sin by God Himself. We can go because Christ has gone before us. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Not a hint of racism here. John Piper put it this way, Jesus Christ died to secure racial diversity in his kingdom. Not a hint of racism here. As we look at the scriptures and we look at the reality that Jesus came to bring in some from every kindred, every tribe, every tongue, every nation into his kingdom. And that in Isaiah chapter 49, God speaking to the Messiah says, it's too little a thing that you should just redeem some from the tribe of Judah. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles. And as we look at the scriptures and it says there is God has made out of the two bodies, Jews and Gentiles, he has made one out of the two. We see in God's sovereign plan that any hint of us exalting ourselves and considering ourselves morally superior or intrinsically superior before God in any way, shape, or form because of the color of our skin, because of where we came from on this globe, because of social status, any of these things, it's just blown out of the water. And so, necessarily, you need to be warned about groups like the alt-right. There's a thread of a white supremacy and superiority that has woven its way through the alt-right. Groups like the Southern Nationalists. Obviously, any neo-Nazi type group. There are many in these groups who will profess to be Christian but yet the way that they live in promoting their own superiority is diabolic, diabolically contrary in application to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it, there simply is not a hint of this. You know, the reality is when we look at Scripture, we go astray whenever we start comparing ourselves to other human beings and we stop comparing ourselves to the one who sits on the throne. As soon as we start saying, oh, I'm superior and I'm superior and I'm superior, 
Obviously, you know that I'm not saying if we look at the moral standard in God's word, we can point and say that is wicked and that ought not to be done over there. We're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But the idea that there's some type of moral intrinsic superiority based on the color of one's skin or one's ethnic origin... You know, totally depraved is totally depraved. <laughs> and we're all totally depraved, even if we're, even if we're uh, blue-eyed, blonde hair, you know, whatever else. White skin, doesn't matter. The gospel is the great leveler of us all. And Christ died to secure people out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we need to promote that message. Not some type of supposed superiority. The lamb is superior. There are two races of people in this world. Those who are Christ and those who aren't. Made us kings and priests to our God, we shall reign on the earth. Oh, I'm running out of time. I'm out, I'm out of time, but I'd, I'd like to preach this so much more. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put a few things in a nutshell here to conclude. But in Exodus chapter 19, the people of Israel are told by God, I have chosen you to be a kingdom of priests unto me. And we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and it says of the New Testament church that we are kings and priests unto God. And it says here the same thing. We are the church, all those from whatever ethnicity or background God saves us out of, we are God's special chosen people. We are kings and priests unto God. Don't have time to defend this, but I'm just going to throw it out there. As you look at the promises made to the people of Israel, the new covenant people of God, the spiritual Israel are inheritors of the promises. Galatians chapter 3 says, those who are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham, even if they're Gentiles, and are heirs according to the promise. And so, there's disagreement uh, sometimes in the Reformed camp about when all these promises will be fulfilled, but Jesus said that the meek will inherit the earth. We, the people of God, are blessed by the promise made to Abraham of inheriting the land and the earth. We are called the Israel of God in Galatians chapter 6. We are kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, a massive number of angels, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, the whole creation resounding, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb 
forever and ever. And you know, as you, as you go on in Revelation, it says over and over again that God who sits on the throne and the Lamb, the one who's on the throne and the Lamb, you see them jointly connected throughout the book of Revelation. And in the, in the end of Revelation, when it speaks about the, the eternal existence in the new heavens and the new earth, the sun is not needed there because God is there and the Lamb. You see them connected together over and over again, showing the divinity of Christ and His reigning and ruling with His Father upon that throne. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped Him who lives forever and ever. And such worship, if Jesus is not God, would be absolute blasphemy. The Lamb is worthy. So the picture here is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And for us, we think about, you know, and some people have, have even thought in history, if, well, if only, God, if only God were a man, and He could come and He could talk to us and show us what He's like as one of us. You know what? He did. <laughs> he did. And we see Him as He walked in the dust of this earth, as He lived, as He breathed, as He interacted, as He cared for the poor and the outcasts of society, He reached out to them with the love of God, and as He rebuked sin, And he was so devoted to his father, he marched straight to the cross. And he is both the sacrifice and he is our great high priest, as well as our king. God did come. In the understanding of God's transcendence and the rules above all, we still recognize that He is imminent. He is here with us. God with us, Emmanuel. And so, we point people to Jesus, the Lamb, who reigns and rules, but He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And we worship Him. We are called to worship Him and give honor to Him who sits upon the throne. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious vision. Thank you for the realities that it portrays to us. Thank you for Christ and his glorious work on our behalf. And we ask, Father, that we would constantly be in the throng of all of the creation, constantly worshiping, worshiping, worshiping. Burn from our lives anything which is not pure worship of you, Father. Direct our hearts unto you. I pray you'll be glorified in the rest of the day that we have together. The time of fellowship that we have and the time of caring for and discussing the material things that you have entrusted into our care. May we worship you in all of this. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.